Gnosticism uh, comes from the Greek word for gnosis or knowledge. Uh, The the Gnostic heresy was one that was around in the first century. Uh, Gnosticism is about a special knowledge. It's about immediate knowledge. And when I say immediate knowledge, I don't mean right now knowledge. I mean knowledge that doesn't have to be mediated through a source. Knowledge that doesn't have to be mediated through the word of God. Uh, Immediate knowledge. Intuitive knowledge. A knowledge that separates insiders from outsiders. That is the idea of Gnosticism. And I use that phrase, ethnic Gnosticism, to sort of explain the phenomenon of people believing that somehow because of one's ethnicity that one is able to know when something is racist. I remember back in the 90s, I think, there was a saying, it's a black thing you wouldn't understand, right? And the idea is that, you know, if I go to a restaurant and I sit down at the restaurant and somebody looks at me a certain way, or if I'm shopping in a store and the clerk looks at me a certain way, or if I'm pulled over by a police officer and the police officer addresses me in a certain way, I know when it's racism. And you can't tell me it's not. And even if you do or say something to me, I know if it's racism and you can't tell me it's not. And in fact, if you do something or say something to me and I know that it's racism and then you come back and say, well, no, that's not what I meant. That's just your privilege speaking. Because according to the concept of white privilege, you don't know what you don't know. How about that? You don't know what you don't know, but I do. That's ethnic Gnosticism. This idea that somehow because of my ethnicity, because of my position as a minority, I know what oppression is and feels like and don't have to necessarily have evidence for it. And because of other people's position of not being minorities and not being oppressed, they actually oppress people without thinking about it and without knowing it. They have privilege that they're not even aware of. And literally the phrase is, you don't know what you don't know. So you have to be taught how racist you are. But nobody has to teach me when you're racist. That's ethnic Gnosticism. And it's a problematic idea. That's Vadi Bakum on ethnic Gnosticism. Reverend Vadi Bakum, president of the African International uh, Seminary in Zambia, Africa. And this makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? A person has to be taught how racist they are. Uh, But the ones who have higher knowledge, the ones who have the inside knowledge, do not have to be taught to spot racism because they just know it. Thus, this kind of knowledge 
does not have to be mediated by any other kind of source. And it doesn't need to be mediated by the Bible because people just have a higher knowledge based upon their own intuition or based upon their own interpretation of events. And of course, because it agrees with a lot of other people who think just like they do. Saying this more simply, such folks say, I know what's in your heart, but you can't possibly know what's in your own heart. I have this amazing capacity to read your and your mind. But you, because you are a racist, have no capacity whatsoever to interpret your own heart and your own mind. Now contrast this to what the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The obvious application of this Bible verse is saying that you're trusting your own heart to determine who's racist or who's not racist, and you cannot understand your own heart. Do you really think you can tell somebody else what's in their heart? Well, how did we come to this point where we have people who have inside knowledge and those who are outside the know? How did we arrive as a nation at this point where we have those who are woke and those who are unwoke, the insiders and the outsiders, where genuine relationships are being destroyed over this stuff on a daily basis, where careers are being lost and a, a lifetime of good work can be canceled because someone said the wrong thing or did not agree with the right people? How did we arrive at this juncture where both guilt and innocence are now inherited? If you have less melanin in your skin and the people from your ethnicity have been the ruling class since the beginning of this nation, then you cannot help but be a racist. But people with more melanin in their skin cannot be racist because they have not historically been part of the hegemony of our country, the ruling class. And how can we be the most multi-ethnic nation on the planet? That's the facts. That's the truth. The most, most multi-ethnic nation on the planet. Most other nations are pretty homogenous. And yet we are called by the insiders the most racist. How as a nation can racism be determined as socially unacceptable, demonized and prohibited by law when it comes to equality and yet we're told over and over and over again by the enlightened insiders in our culture that we're all racists. The message is loud and clear. You better buy in or you, we will make your life miserable. You better go along to get along. Well, how do we live in a culture where heading down the road of life, you find one ditch on one side of the road that says that race and ethnicity is everything. Life is all about one's color of skin. And then in the other ditch on the other side of the road, we're being told that ethnicity doesn't matter. That people say, I don't see color. I have a lot of friends of color. So color doesn't matter to me. How do you know you have friends of color if you don't see that they have a different skin color than you? How can we be in a country where black people with all the bad that exists and has been injurious to them throughout our history still have the most prosperous black population on the planet? We have the healthiest, wealthiest, most successful black people in the world. In fact, Nigerian immigrants who come to this country by the second generation make 14% above average income in our nation, above the average for everybody else. How can we have this and yet we're so, so, so racist? And by the way, 
Why are minority populations literally rushing our southern border right now to get into our country, risking it all, risking their lives, spending every last penny they have to get here? And how can so many immigrants come to this nation and get to experience the American dream if this place is so racist? How did we get to this place culturally where people seem to be having two different conversations, where people talk past one another and do not listen to each other, where people end friendships, where they disqualify one another, where they leave churches or they're asked to leave churches because they simply are not saying the right things. Where in our country do you hear people say, let's have a Bible study? on racial reconciliation. Let's do a sermon series on race, ethnicity, and the image of God. Let's have small group discussions and go deep on the subject of biblical justice. You will not hear that in churches today, but you will hear a lot about social science. You'll hear a lot about oppression and oppressors, systemic racism, white privilege, whiteness, and white supremacy. A person will also hear a lot about equity inclusion, diversity, and tolerance, although you may not experience very much tolerance if you ask questions or question what's being told you, like we're doing here today. You won't be admonished to read the Bible, but you will be told that you need to read books on white privilege, white guilt, white rage, and intersectionality, all of which are placed above the Bible, along with all the other curriculum in this genre. And uh, it's not that we can't read any of this literature, because i got to tell you, folks, I have read tons and tons of these books preparing for this sermon series. I've spent the better part of this last year reading all these books, and I've read some things that are painful, painful to read and hard to read, uh, but they've helped me understand what's going on a little bit better. But we, it's okay to do those things and read those things, but we always place the Bible over these social science books. It's not the other way around. We interpret things in this culture from a biblical worldview, a biblical perspective. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It's God's Word that is inspired. And you know what? It should be treated that way. If it's God's Holy Spirit-inspired Word, then it's our responsibility to treat it that way. And you know, all these secular books, all these social science books, all these humanistic uh, forms of literature are not Holy Spirit-inspired literature. 2 Corinthians 10.5 also says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. As Christians, we're not in the business of taking secular humanistic teaching and claiming that Jesus is Lord, but Jesus, you've got to come under this. You are Lord, but you need to submit to all this social scientist teaching and humanistic teaching. 1 John 2.17 says the world and its desires are passing away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. There's no question as a nation that our chickens have come home to roost. The great sins of our nation, which we have acknowledged in this sermon series, chattel, slavery, actually owning people like livestock, the land grabbing and the trail of tears and genocide. We didn't spend much time on Indian boarding schools and the breakdown of Native American families, but we are saying that right now. That's all part of that against First Nations peoples. 
We talked about the Jim Crow era and peonization and the horrific lynchings and the massacres like at Tulsa a century ago and the internment camps. We have acknowledged these things in this sermon series and we've lamented all of them. Horrible, atrocious sins. And there's no question, biblically speaking, that we are reaping as a nation what has been sown in our history. We cannot have centuries of such horrible atrocities and sins and not see the consequences of those things down the line. But I have to tell you, folks, what, are, what we are seeing in our nation right now is a whole different animal, especially since the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The main concern for civil rights now centers not on the plight of anyone who's oppressed, but rather on the guilt of the oppressor, especially white people. And it happens to say this, I'm not complaining because I'm one of them, but white, male, heterosexual, able-bodied Christian men. Rather than doing something about the poverty and the violence and the family breakdown and the poor schools, etc., white people right now beat their breasts and compete with one another to demonstrate their moral virtue. Who among them is the most woke who is doing the most to demonstrate, to tear down the powers that be, to help others to woke up? Dr. John McWhorter, a professor at the Ivy League College, Columbia, who happens to be a black man and politically liberal, he dismisses this white self-flagellation in an article he wrote called Atonement Activism. Here's what he says. This brand of self-flagellation has become the new form of enlightenment on race issues. It qualifies as a kind of worship. The parallels with Christianity are almost uncannily rich. White privilege is the secular person's, white person's original sin, present at birth and ultimately ineradicable. One does one's penance by endlessly attesting to this privilege in hope of some kind of forgiveness. Ineradical means that it can't be eradicated. In other words, a person can continue to gravel. They can continue to self-flagellate. They can beat their breasts. They can sit in sackcloth and ashes and pull their hair out and pull their whiskers out. And they can never do enough to pay for the sins of our nation. In modern secular atonement, this activism, this absolution that people are seeking is unattainable because it's never enough. Thus, the cross of Christ, from their viewpoint, co covers over every sin except this original sin of whiteness, which happens to fly right in the face of the Bible's teaching that we've all sinned in Adam and that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The self-affirming part that is the rub of this new cult of atonement points out that it's less about people of color and more about white people. Fifty years ago, a white person learning about racism in America came away asking, how can I help? What can I do to make things better? Today, that same white person comes away asking, how can I show that I'm a moral person? How can I show that? And sadly, what gets lost in this process is helping people who are less fortunate, those who are impacted by poverty and crime and violence and the breakdown of the family and drugs. People are not truly looking to right wrongs or find solutions to problems that are impacting people of color. 
The new wokeness of atonement, sadly, is all about white people seeking grace. You wonder why you see so many white people at all these demonstrations and protests? They're seeking atonement for these nation's sins of ours. The question remains in all of this, how did we get to this place now as a nation where the only redemption that white people have is ongoing, continuous self-flagellating? It has come primarily through a form of cultural Marxism. And we have to name it today, known as, uh, as critical race theory. And I'm going to tell you basically four tenets of critical race theory. But as I'm telling you that, please know that the advocates of this would right away say, oh, no, no, that's not what we do. Oh, no, that's not what we do. And they keep moving the goalposts. But from what I've read and studied and everything I've listened to, here's the four pillars that I see. Number one, racism is normal. In other words, everything is racist. Everything is racist. It's everywhere, all the time. It's as if you live your life every single day and you're encountering racism. In fact, I was at the conference track meet three weeks ago and I asked a few coaches at the end of the meet, did, did you encounter any racism today? They look at me like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about, racism? And we had uh, an amazing indigenous young lady win three events, the hardest events to do back to back. It was incredible. And a number of African-American athletes that won. And sadly, one African-American got disqualified in the 200, which cost our team four points because he would have bumped some other teams back that won the contest. I mean, and, and nobody, nobody's racist. We live our lives. People aren't and, you know, I sometimes wonder if racism is everywhere and everything is racist and they call everything racist, it's like crying wolf all the time. Pretty soon it's not going to mean anything. And when we really need people to stand up to racism, people aren't going to be there because they're crying racism all the time. It's everywhere. But in Robin DiAngelo's book, White Guilt, he says, it's not whether racism occurred, it is how it occurred. And you have to understand, this is why the 1619 Project is so important to this movement, which is when the first African slaves came to our shores. Now, you have to understand the history of this. Pirates had actually attacked and stolen the cargo of a slave ship that was heading to the Caribbean islands and came to the region of Virginia and wanted to sell the slaves. But the only problem was there wasn't slavery there. There was no market to sell their slaves, so they basically ended up dumping the slaves off. And so what did the locals, there, what did the, the slaves have to do, which was very common back in those, in those years, they became indentured servants for two years. So they could eat and build up some assets, and after two years they were set free. So the first black people on our continent came here. Yes, they were brought by slave ships, but they were pirated and brought here. Not to be slaves here, but they tried to sell them, but there was no market for it. And so they ended up being these indentured servants, and the first black people here were basically free black people, completely set free. Now, this, to CRT advocates, you cannot say that our nation began in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence. Or if you want to be technical, you can't say it began in 1787 with the ratification of the Constitution. Because if racism is normal, if racism is everywhere, if racism is, everything is racist all the time, then you have to have 1619. It stands to reason that our nation has to be defined from its very inception as racist, even though history doesn't show that. Second thing I want you to understand is what I see as the convergent theory, that white elites materially benefit. That's what this belief is. White 
elites materially benefit from racism and thus do the working class, which primarily have been white throughout the history of our nation, thus making all such people incapable of righteous actions. People that are white here are materially incurable because they've been feeding at the trough so long. They're ineradicable racists. They are oppressors of the oppressed. That's the convergence theory. Third is going to rock you a little bit. They're anti-liberal. Hold it a minute. Everything I hear coming out of their mouths is progressive and liberal. Well, you're missing the point here. This is in the academic sense, the sense of liberal arts, the sense of broadening your mind to understand uh, all different fields of study and all different kinds of literature and different things. Liberal in its true meaning is freedom. In its biblical meaning is freedom. And they are absolutely opposed to that. They are against the equality theory. They're against the natural principles of constitutional law. They're against the legal reasoning, against legal reasoning, and frankly, rationalism. But you you can't think things through. You can't think for yourself. You can't take things to their logical conclusion. Hold it, if we're such a racist society, a student in college might ask, how come so many you know, uh, minorities are prospering in our culture. Oh, oh, you can't do that. They will do everything within their power to, such, to stop such reasoning that you're trying to think things through on your own. They're anti-liberal. The fourth one is that knowledge is socially constructed. There is no objective knowledge. Knowledge is socially constructed by the oppressors for the benefit of the oppressors. Story and narrative is the normative way that people of color further knowledge, while white people do it through science, mathematics, and reasoning. Now, there's a little bit of truth in this because uh, uh, oppressed people historically have always shared stories, but you know what? Rural people share stories. We pass a lot, a lot of our knowledge and history by because just because of culturally where we live, we pass those things along through stories. People actually enjoy the, the place I'm at in my career because I can give so much history of our church right now. Uh, so we're passing along those stories in our church. But such scientific methods, the critical race theory advocates say, is white. Being on time, being self-reliant, and placing an emphasis on the nuclear family, all of that is white, and thus it's socially constructed. This is why one of the major organizations in our, in, 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 that has dominated the nation's news cycles uh, for the last 15 months that's been demonstrating in cities all over the nations, you know, early on when they were doing that and promoting their agenda, they put right on their website that they were against the nuclear family. But they got so much pushback because it made the organization look so bad that they had to take it down. Have you been confused by the de-emphasis right now on math, science, and logic in our society, in our schools, in our institutions of higher learning? It's all part of the playbook of critical race theory. Even churches are buying into this. Instead of churches saying, we need to study God's Word to see what God's word says about racial reconciliation, we hear, well, we have to have a conversation and we have to elevate the voices of the marginalized. Yes, yes, yes. We need to hear from all people. And as Christians, 
we need to listen very carefully. Yes, we have serious problems in our culture and many related to race and to class, but to throw objective truth out, to throw out absolute truth, to disregard reasoning and logic as if they're out of bounds, that's basically saying that the Bible can't be trusted because the Bible's full of absolute truth. It's full of objective truth, and we have to use reasoning to work our way through to properly interpret and understand the Bible. Also, all truth is God's truth, no matter what field it's inquired in. Now, in our culture right now, the centrality of, of experiential knowledge is the thing. That's the thing right now, the centrality of experiential knowledge. And if it conflicts with years and years of objective truth, so be it. So what? And please understand the goals of these groups, like CRT, is to divide us. It's to divide those in our nation, to create chaos, to place people in groups and make them at odds with one another so that we get divided by race, by class, by urban and rural, by profession, by gender, by creed, by political preference, by who we support and don't, by castigating people in authority, especially those in law enforcement. This is where all this comes from. You need to understand that the sole goal of all of this is to stir up unrest, to create splits, to destroy families and churches, and to create confusion and overall turmoil in our culture. In other words, keep stoking the fires of racism and classism to achieve their own ends. And this is something, I have to tell you, that Christians absolutely cannot participate in. Now, I'm going to turn to two texts today, and the first one is Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you need to turn there. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 22, what has often been called the forgotten part of Ephesians chapter 2, because we're all over Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, because it talks about how we lived in darkness, but now we're, we're living in the Lord. You know, we were sinners before, but now we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of works that anybody can boast, and we're God's workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance. Amen. Oh, that's great. Oh, this is fabulous. And we forget that there's 12 more verses here in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. And as I'm going to read this for you, 11 through 22, please keep in mind that there's a temple analogy here. From the beginning when I start reading this, understand that there's a temple analogy here. Therefore, since we're saved by grace, through faith, not by works, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Okay? God says to one person who happens to be uh, living 450 miles uh, east of the promised land, a person named Abram, who he would give a covenant name to called Abraham, and has him go to this promised land. This Abraham is the same genetic makeup, has the same DNA of all his relatives, same melanin, same pigmentation, everything else, and he makes this covenant that says, you're going to be a great nation. You're going to be my chosen people. And then he symbolizes that with a, you know, circumcision. That's it. That's it. And then all the other peoples of the world 
are the Gentiles. They're outside. Even his former family are on the outside. And that means that all of us in this world are Gentiles if we're not of the nation of Israel, if we're not Jewish people. So it means we're all standing on the outside. That means black people, white people. That means Asian people. That means, uh, you know, Latino people. Every, you name every ethnic group in the world, everybody's on the outside. Except. And, by the, by the way, in the temple, that got played out in a big way. Because once a year, the Holy, of, uh, the Holy of Holies, which is where the presence of God was, the high priest could go in on Yom Kippur, make a sacrifice there into the Holy of Holies, but only the high priest could go in there. Then the next level for the temple was the priests. Then the next level were the Levites, the worship leaders. Then there were the court of the men, the male, male court, which of course is only Jewish men. Then there was a court of the women, which is only Jewish women. And then you get to be the Gentiles back here. And think about when you had the major festivals and thousands and thousands of people. Who got the cheap seats? Who were the people in the nosebleed section? They didn't even get close to the field to see the action that was going on there. It was the Gentile people. All the other ethnicities of the world. So we're all in the same boat. Okay? That's a division that God created. Okay? That God allowed in this world. We pick it up now in verse 13. But now in Christ... You who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who's our peace? Who's our harmony in life now? Who's the harmony of all the Gentile peoples of the world? It's Jesus who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross which by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Folks, this is our theological foundation for racial reconciliation. This is our theological foundation for restoring relationships. Then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 through chapter 4, verse 7, some other interesting things. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. you hear that? All of us can be children of God through faith. And now that this faith has come, we are no longer under those guardians. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's usually where we quit, okay? 
But get this. If you belong to Christ then, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We go all the way back to Abraham then. We're all part of these chosen people that God wanted to be in this world if you are, have faith in Christ. And what I'm saying is that as long as an heir is, in, is under age, he is no different from a slave, uh, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery un- under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time came, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are His sons, God sent His Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are His child, God has made you also an heir. We've all been adopted, save one who is Jesus, who actually paid the penalty for or paid for our adoption fee. And you know, sometimes people that are adoptive parents get really frustrated when they are out in public and people will ask, which of those children are your children? Which of them are adopted children? And they want to, they're all our children. What do you mean? No, no. I mean, which children are natural children? And which aren't natural? Are any children natural? I mean, come on. And then, and then, you know, which, no, but which ones are your blood children, your own blood, flesh and blood? And, and, and parents of adopted children get pretty frustrated by that. You know, if I have an accident and, uh, and authorities need to call my next of kin, you know who they're going to call? They're going to call my wife. She's not a blood relative. My wife's not a blood relative. That's through marriage that she's the closest person to me in this world. And it's through adoption as sonship by Jesus Christ who paid the adoption fee that we're all children of God. We're fellow members of the same household with the saints. We're members of the household of God. And yes, there are problems in our family, but in Christ we can talk them out. In Christ we can work them out. Jesus is our peace, and we have God's Spirit and God's Word to guide us. Thus we have a message and a ministry of reconciliation. And that's what our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 was referring to. That's what it talks about there for us. You know, verse 16, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ this way, we do it no longer. We used to think in that worldly frame of rest. We don't do that anymore. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ and not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. You know, there's a lady in our church who wrote a poem years ago called Bridges. Here's what she said. Bridges connect sides of a way so one can get across. Bridges provide a means to cross places, otherwise impassable. Draw bridges, toll bridges, covered bridges, rope bridges. Some bridges are free and easy to cross. Others are difficult and require some work. People are like bridges, connecting sides, passing oneself over. Some people are like drawbridges who pull themselves up and don't allow people to reach them. Some are like covered bridges who hide the way to their heart. Some people 
are like toll bridges requiring you to pay the price. Some people are like rope bridges, difficult and dangerous to cross. And some people are free, open bridges, reaching out to others, connecting hearts, providing a way across, giving firm support. Everyone needs to have a free, open bridge. For if you close your bridge, you destroy that over which you must pass yourself. Our world needs Christians to lead the way in racial reconciliation, to build bridges of reconciliation through Jesus, who has given us the message and the ministry of reconciliation. Would you please pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for today and this very challenging sermon series that we've been going through called Courageous Christianity. And Lord, even today, we've talked very honestly and truthfully about things that are going on in our culture, and we've named them. And God, we've done so in the context of the Bible, knowing that the things of this world are passing away, but whoever does the will of God will live forever. Oh God, we desire to do your will. We long to do your will. Help us, God, to be bridges of reconciliation uh, from that wonderful biblical theological foundation we have of being reconciled to Christ as all peoples of this world. And Lord, may we be able to do our part as your children in this world to share and show and, and carry on that great ministry of reconciliation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.